Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Charles Elton about his book, Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of a Vision. The book was published in 2022 by Abrams. Michael Cimino has largely disappeared from film discussion, but was widely known as the director of both an arguably great film, The Deer Hunter, and a film known more for its failure than anything else, Heaven's Gate. Charles and I discuss his journey in presenting a well-rounded view of Cimino's life, concentrating on Heaven's Gate and its production. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Charles Elton. Welcome, Charles. We are talking about your new book, came out earlier this year in 2022, Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of a Vision. And of course, the author is Charles Elton, who is actually quite uh, well known in both uh, Los Angeles and London as a producer, also agent, and suddenly uh, decided writing nonfiction it was a good idea for this particular book about Michael Cimino. So uh, before we go more in depth in the book, though, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about your background so that people get a better sense of what your uh, uh, experience is and why this particular topic was such logical uh, idea for you. Okay, well, as you know, I, I, I was an agent Amazingly, I started off as a graphic designer, and it's too complicated to explain how I moved from that to being an agent, but I did. Um, and I worked for a very well-known firm called Curtis Brown that has branches in uh, New York and London. And in, in those days, it had one in L.A. I'm not sure it does anymore. And I represented screenwriters and directors and worked out in L.A. some of the time at our office there. And we did lots of lots of business in America. And I love working in L.A. I love L.A. In, in, in England, people are very snobbish about L.A. They think, you know, there's no culture. You have to drive everywhere. Both things seem to me an advantage. Um, I love L.A. And then after I'd been an agent for some years, I got offered the job producing. And I produced until about... Um, five, six years ago when I'd written a novel and the Penguin published, Viking Penguin, and 
they wanted me to do another book. So I took a sabbatical and wrote another book. And then I went back into television and then I left television, I think, for the last time. And I had, I've never been very good on ideas. And I was trying to think up a novel and I couldn't. And a friend suggested that I write about Chimino. That's not such a stretch because, in fact, why I, why I became an agent in the, on the film side is because from a child, when I was a child, I was always a total kind of showbiz junkie. And it's literally the only thing I know anything about. I don't know about presidents of the United States, kings and queens of England. I know nothing, but I know everything about movies. Um, you know, when I was 10, I was seeing like 100 movies a year. I've seen literally everything. And I've got a very good, I've got a sort of Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man kind of memory for movies. Um, so I, when my friend suggested Chimino, A, I'd never thought of doing a nonfiction book. And I didn't know whether I really wanted to do it or not. Uh, but that was more, I didn't know whether I could do it because I had literally no idea how you'd go about writing a biography. I did know a lot about Chimino and not as much as I discovered later, but I did know a lot and, uh, because I know a lot about movies and I knew about sort of his, I knew he was a strange guy. I didn't know quite how strange and I knew about, obviously I knew a lot about Heaven's Gate because there was that book that I talk about in my book called Final Cut. Um, and I knew about, I knew about it all really but in, in, in a sort of general way. And then I began, I went out to LA um, just to hang out there for a bit. And I, and I began getting in touch with some people and it sort of escalated from there. And one of the reasons I wanted to write about Chimino when I'd been given the idea was because there is nobody like Chimino. I mean, he was an odd guy He's a kind of unique talent. I, 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 I'm not saying he's the greatest director in the world, but he is certainly one of the most interesting directors. And, he, you know, he led such a strange life. And I was sort of interested in, I've always been interested in really, failure is more interesting than success. I mean, success is kind of inspirational, I suppose. Um, but failure is instructive. And I was, I kind of looked at it, at him, sort of like Orson Welles after Citizen Kane. And I'm not saying Chimino is as great a filmmaker as Orson Welles, but both of them after Citizen Kane for Welles and after Deer Hunter for Chimino, they held the world in their hands and they let it slip away. And I found that really interesting. You know, the reasons why people's careers don't go the way they should. What is it in their makeup that has a kind of self-destruct button? I mean, Wells had the same thing. Um, that really, really interested me. And compared to other directors, one might do a biography of Sidney Pollock. Alan Pecula, you know, I'm not saying they weren't terrific filmmakers, sometimes great filmmakers, but they're not interesting. I don't mean the films aren't interesting, but I don't think there's anything 
particular, and you said Nick Pollock a bit, and he was a lovely guy, but he's not interesting like Chimino. He was just a terrific filmmaker. And there's no kind of backstory to a lot of directors. Um, and with Chimino, it was kind of like all backstory. And obviously I discovered a lot more about the backstory as I went along. And it was even stranger than I thought it was going to be. And that's interesting to write about. I know for prep uh, for this interview, I did quite a bit because I wanted to make sure I was reinvested in Chimino because it'd been a long time that I'd sure. seen anything. So I actually had read the Bach, the Stephen Bach book, which is the book you're referring to. He was a, yep. he was one of the executives at uh, United Artists under Transamerica when Heaven's Gate was made, uh, wrote a very generally scathing book about the making of the film. Um, and also, in many ways, his was the only story out there of the making of the film. Absolutely, absolutely. And I read it back when it first came out in 85. And what was interesting to me at the time I read it was the likelihood, at least at that point, that I'd never see the film. Because by that point, it had come and gone. It had died on the line. Absolutely. While the shorter version had gone out there, it was, and I think it even came out on the shorter version came out on home video. Yeah, I think it did. Yeah. The full video, the full movie was unlikely to be ever be seen. Yeah. So uh, I read the book. Uh, he he revised it slightly in '99, just with a few, a new yeah, introduction. Yeah. But other than that, um, so I read the book again. It's been a long time since I'd read it, and then of course I made sure to watch both Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate from the using the wonderful Criterion edition of Heaven's that Gate. That fantastic. And so got my head back into all that. So, cause I felt I really wanted to, to immerse myself a little bit. So, yeah. uh, and it was, it was an enjoyable process. So I can imagine how, um, your, and then reading your book was just great because you actually found information that was unknown about him. You yeah. were able to find people who still were, who were willing to talk at all. And one of the things that comes through regularly in your book is that not only did he want to stay private, secret, a ghost, he didn't like it when anybody else talked about him either. And if it was a no. friend, the possibility was there that friend was going to get thrown out yeah. on their ears. So a lot of that. Yeah. I so, mean, final cut. Sorry. That's okay. So that's sort of where I came into this, and this is why I found the book so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Final Cut, which obviously I read because I've read like every film book when it came out. I mean, it is a wonderful, gossipy, nasty, bitter book. And what I discovered really was that, as I say in the book, you know, it's regarded as one of the great movie books alongside, there are quite a few, but the two I mentioned in my book are Picture, which was a book that Lillian Ross, the New Yorker, writer wrote about the making of John Huston's Red Badge of Courage in about 1950, say. It's sort of journalistic. She, she was on the set and it's a kind of piece of reportage. Then there was Julie Salomon's book about um, Bonfire of the Vanities, the Brian De Palma movie, which is called Devil's Candy, which again is a fly on the wall. She's there. But the difference between them, those two books, and Stephen Bass is that he has an axe to grind. So it is not the, the first two books are impartial. 
his isn't, which, you know, I'm not, he's not pretending to be impartial, of course. And of course, because of his personal involvement, it does make it a gripping book. But I think it is, I think he was a very unreliable narrator. And I do kind of pick his book to pieces. I'm not saying a lot of it didn't happen, but his interpretation of events I found slightly shaky. And then I found and persuaded to talk David Field, who was his counterpart. There were two of them in charge of Heaven's Gate, Bach and David Field, and they were equal. They were both heads of production. And David Field had always had refused to be part of the final cut book and has never talked. And I, it's a long story how I got to him and got him to talk, but he proved to be the most wonderful philosophic guy who gave me because he knew Stephen Bach so well he gave me rather a different story which if you've read my book you'll know the story I mean um so I you know I I would advise everybody to read Vinyl Cut but just take it with a pinch of salt and it reveals a very flawed person Stephen Bach I mean we're all flawed, so I'm not, I'm not saying he's more flawed than you and I, but he, he's flawed. But it's an interesting book. Yeah, because obviously he was somebody involved, so the bias is there. And he and Field sure. obviously had their issues, especially, and 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 they never talked again after Field left. Yeah. So um, it was. It's clear that the bias is there, and. Obviously, like you say, the gossip and everything, but as I say, one of the things I found so interesting when I first read it back in the day, and now having read it again since I've, you know, having seen Heaven's Gate, it's got a completely different uh, tenor to it. It's completely, yes. it reads differently having actually seen the film where I'm sure, yeah. back in the day, you know, you could only go by what you were being told and assume it was there was some honesty yes. in there, but you could yes. start to see a little more of it. So, yeah. So um, anyway, one of the other things that and I want to talking more about the, the mechanics of writing the book right now before we get into the book in more detail was the one of the things that's so great about your book is that the amount of people you were able to talk to. And it's absolutely shocking based on some of the things you said. I mean, obviously, Chimino's passed away in 16, Bach passed away in 2009. So those two characters who are in your book, so to speak, uh, yeah. Tamino, of course, the most, are, you know, we only go by what information you can find in other places. But all the people you interviewed, because there's no question that uh, Tamino, and I'm not even talking about filmmaker. He's probably one of the most misunderstood people Absolutely. that's ever Absolutely. been because of how secretive he was. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I wanted to do, I mean, I can't, a lot of the stories about Tremino behaving badly are true. Um, so I wasn't exactly trying to exonerate him, but I think he was misunderstood. And one of the things I didn't like about Bach's book is that he writes about the things that Cimino did, the rise over the budget, his difficult behaviour, going, you know, months and months and months over schedule. Um, I'm not saying these are great things to do, and I can see if you are a studio executive, you're not going to be happy about it. 
But the way Bach talks about it is with a slight tone of kind of amazement that this could happen. Whereas in the whole history of movies, it happens all the time. I'm not saying that excuses it, but it puts Cimino in a kind of context. If you look at Eric von Stroheim's Greed, Eight Hours, Never Seen, Footage Destroyed, um, David Lean, you know, behaved appallingly. And as I say, the fact that other people did it as well as Cimino doesn't exonerate anybody, but it puts Cimino in a context. Phil, I've worked with a lot of directors. Directors are difficult. That's the point of them. Um, so I so I just wanted to put Cimino in a context of other difficult directors. Um, you know, uh, Ryan's Daughter, the David Lean movie from the early 70s, or maybe 1970, you know, it was in principal photography for more than a year. I mean, that is unbelievable. When um, it was shot in Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland, and there was a big storm sequence in the movie, in the script, and because weather being weather, um, the weather didn't play ball, and they couldn't get the footage for the big storm sequence. David Lean put the entire crew on a plane and flew to South Africa and shot it there. Now, that's Chimino-like behaviour. Um, but also, Ryan's Daughter is not a very good film. <laughs> I mean, not that that necessarily has anything to do with it. But anyway, I'm rambling. That is what directors do. And I, I wanted to put Chimino in that context. Um, but I think he was he was badly treated. He did treat people badly himself. But he was a kind of, one of his problems, he was spiky, sensitive, difficult, not good with people. Though he did have friends and people who loved him, but generally he wasn't good with people. Um, and he, he was unpopular, you know, in the movie business. It's like any other business, you know, people like dealing with people, you know, they have a good time with. And particularly the press, you know, people like, like um, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, he's a big, expansive, talkative, full of anecdotes kind of guy. And, you know, he would he would invite all the journalists up when he was making a movie and he'd cook them all spaghetti, you know, on a like a kind of an Italian thing. You know, I'm not saying he, he, he was doing it because he loved the press. He was doing it because he needed to do it. And even when he had a lot of problems like on Apocalypse Now, he was popular. Dito Scorsese, who, 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 who isn't a big and expansive person in the same way as Coppola, you know, he's very interesting. He likes to talk about movies. Um, he's kind of out there. And Chimino just wasn't. He was unlike the other, you know, the directors of his generation, um, though he was a bit older, actually. But, you know, Spielberg, George Lucas, Coppola, Brian De Palma, Bogdanovich, Robert Altman, you know, all the guys. He wasn't one of them. You know, they like they knew a lot about movies. They hung around and they talked about Jean-Luc Godard movies or, you know, early John Ford movies. And Chimino wasn't a kind of, they were called movie brats and that's what they were. And 
Chimino wasn't like that. He didn't know tons about movies. He wasn't even that interested in the history of movies. So he was outside that particular group of people. And that group of people had their ups and downs and some fell out with others and then they made it up with them. You know, there was a sort of floating sea of talent. Chimino was never part of it, never really part of it. And I think that, I mean, that doesn't make him a bad director, but it makes him, he was, an, he was a sort of outsider. And Hollywood doesn't generally like outsiders. Right. And in fact, if, if one of the things, I mean, I would say to a large extent, there were a lot of things that went wrong at the time Heaven's Gate came out. But one of them was the fact that because he wouldn't um, kowtow to the press in any way, they were looking for an excuse Absolutely. to come down on him. Absolutely. And as you pointed out in the book, um, and we know, Apocalypse Now had the same kind of issues as, yep. and it was being filmed at the same time. We yep. can always go back to the 60s and talk about Cleopatra when you want to talk about a Absolutely. troubled set. And since then, so the idea of a movie suddenly having problems and how many of the problems were studio issues. I mean, the bottom line is they pretty much told him he could do what he wanted to do. And yeah. one of the things that comes out of the Bach book, especially, is how many times they said, well, we should do this, and then they don't do it. So, exactly. Uh, exactly. and I think part I mean, of that was it, it comes out in the Bach book, especially how basically inexperienced they all were yeah. Yeah. in running a studio. And, yeah. and unfortunately, Chimino came at the wrong time for them. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, which I go into, to the, go into in the book a bit, is why United Artists let it go so far. I mean, the, the first mistake, I mean, there were many mistakes, is that he insisted on Joanne Corelli, who is possibly the most interesting figure in the whole book. And you actually were able to talk to Chimino. her. Yeah. Um, she was Chimino's, who knows, you know, girlfriend, lover, muse, bad cop, conduit, gatekeeper. She was all those things. Supposed but, mother of his child, which isn't true. It's another Chimino exactly. legend. But she, she, he insisted that she was the sole producer on the movie. And the strange thing is that Joanne who I got to know, which is difficult to get to know, but we had a, mm, I can't think of the word, we had, I had a good time with her. Um, um, interesting, yes. Um, she, I mean, she worked on commercials, so she knew the world, but she wasn't a producer, but she is super bright, super tough, and she could have produced a movie for the most difficult director in the world. She's so tough. But the one thing she couldn't do was do it for Chimino because of their symbiotic, whatever you want to call it, relationship. And I found it really mystifying why United Artists, because, because the, the, in terms of the time scale, United Artists signed up to Heaven's Gate before the deer hunter opened and while there was a lot of talk there was a sort of oscar buzzy kind of feeling around it um it had gone over budget there were endless problems on it and 
as the movie hadn't come out, I mean, as it, as you know, as it turned out, when the movie came out, it got fabulous for the most part, fabulous reviews. It was a controversial movie and it was nominated for nine Oscars. But that happened after United Artists had signed up for Heaven's right, Gate. Right, because you say that Heaven's Gate starts pretty much starts filming the day after the Oscar. Exactly. That he wins exactly. the Oscar. So exactly. obviously pre-production had been going on for quite a yes. while. But the movie opened in December of 78. Yes, it opened in December 78. The Oscars ceremony with, this is shows what a great biography, I can't even remember any of the date. Anyway, it doesn't actually matter that much. What I'm, what I'm saying is United Artists signed on to Heaven's Gate three, four months before Deer Hunter opened. The Deer Hunter was an unknown quantity. So when it opened, got all those reviews and got nine Oscars, Oscar nominations, it won five, I think. Chimina was in an incredibly strong position to do what he wanted. But before that, when United Artists signed up, he wasn't in that strong a position. He'd done a movie that who knew what or how it was going to turn out. And so when he insisted on Joanne producing the movie, United Artists could have said no. I mean, they would have kicked up a fuss, Joanne and Michael, but they didn't have so many cards in their hand as they did finally. And of course, as I go into in the book, there are lots of vanity producer credits. We all know that. Um, the example I cite in the book is Robin Williams was married and had kids, and the kids had a nanny. Um, and the marriage, Robin Williams's marriage broke up and he ended marrying the nanny. Who I know nothing about her. She may be the brightest woman in the world, for all I know, but she produced five of his movies, which on the surface you might think is kind of surprising. Um, but it was a kind of vanity credit, and alongside her, there were really strong producers. Whereas with Joanne, there was no other producer. She was the only credited producer. And that was difficult. And, and as I say, Joanne is an amazing woman, but she had a really tough time. And the perception is that she didn't do anything and did exactly what he said. And actually, that's unfair to her. She really did try to rein him in, but it was kind of impossible. But I, I, I find it very unfair that that's what people thought of her. And also, believe me, if you ever met Joanne, this is not the kind of woman who does nothing and sits back. Um, but of course, she's reclusive too, so no, people don't really know that. But that, so that that was a big problem for the movie. And the the line producer, you know what I mean. I mean, you know what I mean. But but like the line producer is the nuts and bolts guy. Um, so there's the line producer who works for the producer. Uh, the line producer was a guy called Charlie Oaken, who had, who had been the line producer on Chimino's commercials in the 60s. So he was Chimino's guy. Joanne was mostly Chimino's guy slash girl. Um, but producers, so you had Charlie Oaken was working to Joanne, who was essentially as it turned out, even though she tried not for it to be like that, she was working to Chimino. And producers 
they work to directors. They are meant, there are meant to be checks and balances. Producers, they're not meant to get on with directors. You're meant to have endless battles, but that's all part of it. Um, so it was a very strange situation. And without strong backup from United Artists, there was very little she could do, and they didn't back her up. And Bach and Field, David admitted to me, said, you know, we weren't Daryl F. Zanuck. They weren't that experienced. And, of course, they weren't the producers. They were the studio guys. And so it became a kind of perfect storm, you know, that all these elements came together and it all ended in tears because it was really, and all the 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 the, the seeds of the disaster were sown really, really early on, really early on. And Field and Bach, though Field tried a lot harder than Bach did to get it go to pick to rein it in. You know, they there were some crucial decisions they made, which essentially meant they had no power. They, you know, they said if Cimino didn't do this, they would close the film. He did do it and they didn't close the film. They and so he got into a position where he could do what he wanted. Because right. he didn't and he, he knew they weren't going to stop him, so why no, even try? No. And he had a vision. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. And you know, everybody's talked about the budget and the 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 the, the, the how the schedule extended. But as I say in the book, you know, when um, movies run over in terms of their schedule, it's normally because the director is slow or isn't very efficient. And so he doesn't finish the scenes he's meant to be shooting that day. Therefore, they have to move on to tomorrow. So it's like a domino effect. Whereas with Cimino, it wasn't that he was slow. I mean, he was slow. But he, it wasn't that he was trying to do it at this speed, but he could only manage it at that speed. That speed was the speed he wanted to do it at. So, I mean, if you look at it in one way, he was slow, but he was meaning to be slow, whereas most directors who go over schedule, they're trying to be fast, but they can't. You know, the weather's bad or the, the actors are difficult, so it slows down. But that wasn't, I mean, that was what Chimino wanted. And he... You know, and, and you can take any view you want. You know, studios are just there to provide money. That was the way he looked at it. But that's the way a lot of artists look at it. Studios are essentially philistine. And their function is to give you the money to create your vision. And again, Chimino was certainly not the only director who believed that. No. Well, Kubrick, <laughs> you, once again, I'm saying, it's just unbelievable the, the the issue, you know, some of the stuff he did. And yet, yeah. for whatever reason, that didn't get the same kind of, yeah. I mean, because he was working on Shining at the same time. And of course, that's another film that, sure. uh, that went into craziness. Like a, whole, a whole year. So, and of course, part of the issue to me from reading it is that it was United Artists' decision to try to put, say, well, we want to have this movie out by the end of 79 for the yeah, Oscars. Well, that, and that was that one of the that was, was one of the that was one of the dumbest things I thought right from the beginning. So he's not going to start filming until Jul until May or March. And he's going to have it done in time to have it edited and ready to go by December. How anybody 
no matter what his past was like, could think they could put something together like that, yeah. even based on a screenplay that changed a lot. That was the one story where I said, where did they think Actually, that was the, going the to happen? the screenplay didn't change at all. The screenplay was absolutely the same all the way through. Um, no, I mean, he began shooting uh, about mid-April, and I think it had a 16-week... They were meant to shoot it in 69 or 70 days. He signed on to that schedule. He said he'd do it like that. But as he said to somebody he worked with, you know, my, my way of dealing with the studios is to tell them what they want to hear and then do just what I want to do. Um, and, you know, theoretically, if, if so the movie was meant to April, June, was meant to finish probably at the end of July. In fact, it finished at the end of October. It was meant to finish at the end of July, you know, and a normal director who had shot a normal amount of footage, you know, it would be, it would be tough. You could, you could edit it in time. I mean, David Lean edited, edited um, Lawrence of Arabia in 12 weeks. You know, it's possible to do. Um, but Chimino didn't do it like that. And he shot so much footage, you know, like five cameras going all the time. I mean, unbelievable amount of footage. So it would have been pretty difficult to do it. Um, but again, the problem, the, the impact on the budget was that they agreed a budget, which at that point, I mean, the budget kept shifting all over the place. But I think when they started filming, the budget was about 12 million. Um, and then United Artists said, we want this to be ready in time for, as you say, Christmas 70. <laughs> Thank you, correcting me. Um, and he said, which was a brilliant move, he said, well, if the budget goes up, because I have to work quickly in order to fulfill the date you want, I am not responsible for the budget. And there was another clause that said something like, and even if the increased budget isn't anything to do with the fact that I meant to finish it in the get it out by December 79, that's not my problem either. So essentially it meant he could do what he wanted. I mean, United Artists could stop the film and close it down. Of course, they, they could do that at any time. Um, he could do exactly what he wanted. You know, and, and that's one of the things. So th there were two incidents. That was one of them. And United Artists agreed to that clause that his lawyers had come up with about the budget thing. So essentially, they had lost all control over the money. And the other thing was regarding the um, casting of Isabelle Huppert, the French actress. Um, nobody wanted her. They tried, obviously, to go for all the people you'd imagine in 1977, you know, Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, you know, all the people it would be, you know, Sally Field, you know, but they went through the list. One of the problems was that Chris Christopherson had contractual first billing, which again, United Artists agreed to. And while Chris Christopherson, you know, 
he he had just come off a star is born and so he was in a strong position but what it meant was that if you would cast jane fonda the poster the credits would read chris christopherson jane fonda in heaven's gate i mean a star is born didn't say chris christopherson barbara streisand in a star is born it said barbara streisand chris christopherson so a lot of top actresses, you know, why would they? Why would Jane Fonda take second billing to Chris Christopherson? I mean, even if I don't know whether she wanted to do the movie or not, but this is all theoretical. Why would a big female star take second billing to Chris Christopherson? Um, so United Artists had accepted the fact that they weren't going to get a top, top, top box office star, but there were lots of others. You know, there were tons of 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 great actresses, but who weren't A-list in the sense that Jane Fonda and Diane Keaton and Sally Field were. So there were lots of people around who could have played the part. But Cimino saw Isabelle Huppert in a French movie, and he just kind of fell in love with her. And so he said he wanted to offer the part to her. United Artists had never heard of her. I mean, American studio executives never know anything about foreign movies. Um, Stephen Bach, who was very kind of bitchy, which is partly one of the reasons his book is such fun, um, he said she had a face like a potato and couldn't speak English. Um, and Chimino said she couldn't speak English. And they said, first they said, no, you can't have her. And then Andy Albeck, who ran United Artists, who also was not the strongest person in the world, he said, well, at least talk to her. So um, a phone call was arranged. Stephen Bass spoke French. So the deal was they would call her, see if she spoke English, and if they didn't like how she sounded, they weren't going to go ahead with it. So Stephen Bass talks to her on the phone and says she doesn't speak any English, um, or she speaks very bad English. And so we can't have her. Chimino again said, no, I want her. So the deal then moved on to the second stage, which was, OK, we, Bach and Field, will fly to Paris and meet her. But if we don't like her when we met her, we're saying no. So they fly to Paris. Um, Bach says she didn't speak any English and she looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. That means more to Americans than it does to English people, but I kind of get what it means, i.e. whatever. Um, they said, no, they weren't prepared to have her. Chimina went over their head and spoke to Andy Albeck, Albeck, who ran the thing, and he agreed. So with those two things, United Artists lost all control over the money and all creative control. Because once he had been allowed to have Isabelle Huppert, and they'd back down, he could just go on doing that. But of course, um, which Bart doesn't go into in that much detail, is that Isabelle Huppert, whether she spoke English well or not, by the time she got onto the movie, she spoke perfect, I mean, accented, but, you know, perfectly, I mean, she was meant to be playing a French immigrant, you know, so why wouldn't she have an accent? She had an accent, but she's perfectly understandable. <clears throat> but more than that, she appears to have stopped having the face of a potato 
and stopped looking like the Pillsbury dough, Pillsbury, whatever. Um, she is absolutely luminous. And she is probably the best performance in the whole movie. She is absolute magic, which Barr finally kind of admitted. So that's, you know, Chimino wasn't a fool. And it was counterintuitive to go for somebody like Isabel Lupo, nobody had ever heard of. But he was right. I mean, she is stunning in the movie, absolutely stunning. And he knew that. He knew that she would be. I know that uh, we've been consistently talking about Heaven's Gate because, of course, that's sort of the middle section of the book and they'll sure. probably the longest. But really, the book is more of a total biography of Chimino because oh, you yeah, go yeah. all the way back yeah, to yeah. his youngest times and literally from the beginning, from the information, the little bits of information he would let out over the years, plus what you ended up finding was his, he just made up stories he was very good about just saying this and this and this and turn out and a lot of it turned out not to be true so that's one of the really great things about the book in that you don't you know is all the stuff with you can see the patterns in his life the way he did everything uh what i found interesting for example is that uh, you know the idea that his brothers or however however his family is and then by the end of the book you were able to actually talk to one of his brothers and got a lot of information that sort of filled in the blanks related to his life and a lot of it, I mean, it just showed that uh, somebody like him, Chimino, he just made up things and he did, you know, so why we were not surprised that he would be making up other things. I mean, yes. all the stories about script issues that he took credit for everything and seldom, if ever, got what he wanted because this, you know, the Writers Guild would consistently push back at him and ended up, yeah. you know, yeah. so, uh, but from the very I mean, beginning. That is, that is absolutely true, but it, it has to be said, which I do say in the book, the Writers Guild is notoriously unreliable, is necessarily the right word, but it's not a very clear process. And there are lots of examples of people who should have got credit on movies, but didn't. I mean, funnily enough, I think in Chimino's case, he didn't deserve credit on any of the movies he fought for. But, you know, it's a very inexact process. Well, yeah, especially because you were able to talk a little bit more about the background of the writing of the film, more so than even Bach did. And yes. some, of the, some of the stories and parts of it that in both with this film and Deer Hunter, for that matter, where he took stuff from other screenplays and things and so there were definitely no question that there were uh, a lot of these these screenplays uh were very fluid but uh it, it there was no question that most screenwriters didn't particularly like working for him that's <laughs> right of course the other thing that because you wrote it more as a fuller biography <clears throat> the stories about thunderbolt and lightfoot where he actually worked with a strong producer when you when you're working with clint eastwood and Absolutely. That, I mean, it ended up being. I mean, some of his later films after after Heaven's Gate, I know, ended up coming in under budget and on time and stuff. But uh, there was no question that uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, his first feature film, clearly showed that uh, he knew how to work with somebody if the person yep. was strong enough. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The I mean, for me, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. <clears throat> might be my favourite Chimino movie. I think it's wonderful. Um, 
But yes, he didn't. He made one very ballsy stipulation. He wrote the script essentially for Clint Eastwood. I mean, without Clint Eastwood's knowledge, um, it goes to Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood loves it. I mean, it's a lovely script. And he tries to buy the script. And Tremino says, you can't have the script unless I direct it. And Eastwood is a smart guy. And he has always taken chances on people. And with other directors, with writers, all sorts of people, he has an instinct and he takes a chance on it. Sometimes he's wrong, like all of us are sometimes wrong. Um, but he took a chance on Cimino and he knew and said to Cimino that if it didn't work out, it's sacked Cimino. So, and that was a genuine threat as opposed to half of United Artists threats on Heaven's Gate, which were kind of feeble threats. And indeed on, on uh, the movie called The Outlaw Josie Wales, which I think is one of the most liked Clint Eastwood movies, Philip Kaufman, who later went on to do The Right Stuff, um, Henry and June, you know, it was a kind of auteur famous director later. He had written and directed The Outlaw Josie Wales, just in the same way that Chimino wrote and directed Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Phil Kaufman was too slow. And after two weeks, Clint Eastwood sacked him and directed it himself. So everybody knew that Clint Eastwood was that kind of guy. And bizarrely, given how much Chimino hated producers, um, he was friendly with Clint Eastwood all his life. And they got on really well. And you're right, it was the only, only time that he took seriously what a producer said. And the strange, I mean, he shot um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, I can't quite, but it was in something like 40 days. Quite a quick shoot. Clint Eastwood's movies were always cheap, and they were all shot quickly. Um, and when later, when everything had, had got so problematic on Heaven's Gate, when he came to shoot the opening sequence and the closing sequence on the yacht, but mainly that opening sequence, which was filmed in Oxford, England, substituting for Harvard, who wouldn't let them film there. Um, in, in that, you, you, you remember it because you've seen it. I mean, it, it, it is the most stunning sequence. Um, it probably lasts 10, 15 minutes, and there's, there are various sections to it. There's Chris Christopherson um, running down the street. Then he joins a kind of marching band. Then they go into a lecture hall where there's a kind of valedictory lecture. Then there's a dance where like 200 people dance to the Blue Danube around a tree. You've, you've seen it, so you know how right. stunning it is. For those well, it sets up all the later dances yeah, and yeah. actually the final yeah. battle. So he, he was really up against it by then. Um, and so those three sequences, Chris Christopherson running down the street and the marching band, the scene inside the lecture hall which had hundreds of extras joseph cotton was giving the speech and the big dance sequence he shot it in three days and that was one of bath's rueful moments and i don't blame him that when chimino had to do it quickly 
He did it quickly and it was brilliant. You know, that dancing scene around the tree, to shoot that in one day, unbelievable. And it's brilliant. So Chimino could do it. And he did do it on Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. But as nobody ever made him do it again, he took as long as he wanted. I know that um, we've been, you know, that this is one of the things I, I've said already and I want to keep saying about the book because these stories about the individual films are very interesting and great because we're getting a different view uh, yeah. to a large extent. We really haven't talked about Deer Hunter at all, even though it's got a little part place in my heart because I was born and raised, spent most of my life in Cleveland, Ohio. And right. obviously all the church scenes, and you, I can watch them and know, you know exactly. That, you know that church. Right, because and the thing is, they didn't change the street signs, so I can see the name of a street, and I said, oh, I know where that street is. So the, the animal protective leaves <laughs> just down the road from there. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. so, But anyway, so, um, but going forward, I, I think more than anything, between Bach and the press, the amount of destruction that was done on him and his uh, career, I, I, I don't see anything else on the, well, I guess there is. Back in the day with the gossip columnists who would destroy lives of people, Fatty Arbuckle is an example sure, whose life was sure. destroyed. But to a large extent, they destroyed his life to, to the point yep. where even though he did do some more directing, uh, it was never the same. No, it wasn't the same. But again, one of the other things that interested me was why Chimino, why did he get all that shit thrown at him? Okay, you can say he got the shit thrown at him because he did a $44 million movie that grows nothing. I get that. But there were other examples, I mean, of directors who did the same thing. I mean, Blake Edwards did a movie in 1970 called Darling Lily with his wife, Julie Andrews, who was got a big World War I musical. The budget, it was, it was 10 years before Heaven's Gate. Um, the budget was something like $20 million. It doubled, no, sorry. The budget was $10 million. It doubled to $20 million, which if you do it, in 1980s money as opposed to 97, that is like 40, 45 million dollars, i.e., the cost of Heaven's Gate. Um, the movie was a total disaster. Total, total disaster. It was recut, it was reshown, nobody went to see it, and it's a pretty terrible movie. I mean, a love affair between Julie Andrews and Rock Hudson, go figure. Um, but Blake Edwards never stopped working. So other people, I mean, Joe Mankiewicz on Cleopatra, uh, he went on working. So I was just interested in why, and I, in a way, I never came up with a proper answer. Why was so much shit thrown at Chimino when a lot of shit could be thrown at other people? Of all people, Steven Spielberg did 1941, exactly. which was one of the... And yet, for whatever reason, nobody ever talks about the disaster that ended up becoming. No, absolutely. Uh, both absolutely. in its filming and in the results of yeah, what it ended yeah. up on the screen. And yet, for whatever yeah. reason, it doesn't even get discussed as no. a negative. Because the other thing, and, and this the, is... And the, the, go on. And, and the other thing is, 
I think, I mean, you know, whatever, I mean, it's such a cliche that everybody repeats, but that thing that William Goldman said about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. I mean, it is kind of true because it's such an inexact, making a movie is such an inexact science and nobody really knows how movies are going to do. They have focus groups and previews, but there are tons of movies that have had fabulous previews. The movie's a disaster. There are lots of movies that have disastrous previews and the movie does incredibly well. It's such an inexact science. And I didn't put this in the book because I only rediscovered it later or thought about it later. So you have this big movie, slightly unusual Western, very expensive, three hours and 40 minutes long. Um, and it's a flop for some of the reasons we've said that the press were hostile to it. Um, and it's a flop, but it's the way the wind blows and the way the wind was blowing at that moment in Hollywood. Because 10 years later, Dances with Wolves, nobody wanted to make Dances with Wolves. First time director. OK, he was Kevin Costner, but he was still a first time director. This is a three hour expensive movie that is a bit of a plot for his own. It's been a while since I've seen it, but as I recall, it's a bit of a plot for his own. And... Half of it is is in the Lakota, if that's what I mean, Lakota Native American language. So like half of it is subtitled, nothing much happens. It's a giant success. It's the way the wind blows. And I do not think anybody could put their hand on their heart and say Dances with Wolves is a better movie than Heaven's Gate. And I think... The other part, it's just as bad, is that the legacy of Heaven's Gate, and you talk about this in the book at the towards the end about the idea that the 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 statement always is is that Heaven's Gate bankrupted United Artists, yeah. and that's not true, not no, at that, all. I mean, that is one of those, you know, pieces of wisdom, or not non-wisdom because it isn't true, like. I don't know, Nero fiddled while Rome burnt. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, clearly Nero didn't fiddle while Rome burnt. I don't know what he was doing while Rome burnt, but he certainly wasn't fiddling. Um, sorry, I've not completely lost what I was the track of what I was going to say. Um, oh, yes, the thing about the studio. But even now, Bar it was Stephen Bath that started it. Even, you know, and I quoted in the book, even now, like a couple of years ago, Hollywood Reporter did a piece about Cimino, the man that bankrupted the studio. Um, that, is, that is what everybody believes. Started off by Stephen Bach. And in fact, I mean, it wasn't difficult for me to disprove it. Um, I just looked at the figures. Um, when United Artists was sold to MGM, uh, it was sold for... I think $390 million. It had been bought from Transamerica, bought United Artists in 1968 or something, so 12 years or so earlier. They paid $180 million. So 12 years later, it sold for $390 million after the disaster of Heaven's Gate. Um, that's not what I call bankrupting a studio. That in many ways, of, that is a lot of money. 
in many ways from reading, it was it sounded to me more of a matter. It was a business decision in that Transamerica decided they were going to divest some of their outside stuff and said, yeah. let's go ahead and get back to what we know, what we're supposed to, what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, trans, I mean, not Transamerica. Um, yes, Transamerica, who, 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 who acquired it. Um, they were one of those sort of 1960s companies that had a rag bag. You know, they had they owned car rental companies like Gulf and Western who owned Paramount. They had all sorts of weird things. Pepsi-Cola right, or Coca-Cola owning, owning exactly, Columbia exactly. Pictures at the time. They wanted to go back to their core stuff. Um, and they sold and they got a fabulous price for it. I mean, it, 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 as I say in the book, and this is my supposition, um, you could argue that the current regime of United Artists had slightly lost their appetite for filmmaking after the nightmare of um, Heaven's Gate. But, you know, people get back on the bicycle again. And even the year Heaven's Gate was released, United Artists made, a, even after writing off 44 million or whatever they wrote off from Heaven's Gate, they made a profit of $20 million. And this is not bankrupting a studio. And I, given that really, you know, I'm not a financial journalist, if I can find out these figures, which is really, really easy to do, yet nobody's bothered and they've just stuck with that story about it bankrupting a studio. So in a lot of ways, you know, I do think Tremino behaved badly, but, you know, I think he must be given the due he deserves on, on, on some things. Right. So of all the people you interviewed, and I know this is probably open and we're as we're getting close to starting to wrap up a little bit where who was the person i mean besides joanne corelli who obviously would be the most logical one yeah yeah who else did you talk to in particular that you felt really gave you a new look or a new way to look at chimino Okay, well, just to go back to joanne for a moment because i knew about the the, the input she has never been interviewed Ever. She's like quite reclusive. I, when I started thinking about it, I thought if I don't get to Joanne Corelli, I'm not sure I want to do the book. And there seemed no chance of getting to her. And I go into it in the book. I won't get into it now. By a weird series of flukes, I got to her and she agreed to meet me. And I had dinner with her seven, eight times over the course of the two years I was uh, working on the book. But I did make it very clear in the book what she gave me and what she didn't. I mean, in no way were our talks interviews in that sense. There was no agenda to them. I didn't take notes. I didn't record them. Um. They were rambling conversations. And she said, as I say in the book, the first thing she said to me was, I'm not telling you anything. She, you know, she she leads from the front, if that's what I mean. Um, and in a way, she didn't really tell me anything in that sense, but she did tell me a lot of stuff. She didn't tell me much that was personal. So once I did get to her, I thought, well, I am going to do the book. Um, I, the people... The two things that, that made the interview structure work is I decided I wasn't going to interview the actors 
I mean, I've worked with actors all my life. I think actors never have anything interesting to say about anything. Um, they always love the director, generally. There are some examples, but all the actors loved working with Jamina, so they always loved working with the director. They never have anything interesting to say. De Niro, Streep, Christopherson, Jeff Bridges, they've all been interviewed about Jamino before, so I had... I didn't actually use much of it because, as I say, all actors say very boring things. Um, I And it's really, having been a producer myself, I know that the people, the gold dust people, are the smaller people. I mean, Penny Shaw, who's Robert Shaw's daughter, was Chimino's editorial assistant. They were very close until they fell out, until he fell out with her. Um, I just knew, having sat in cutting rooms myself, a person who was on was seven months in Montana with Heaven's Gate working on the editing, and then she spent a year in a darkened room with Chimino, 18 hours a day, six days a week. They are the people who know everything. And she was absolutely invaluable. So I talked to editors, Chimino's longtime secretary, I got to. Absolute magic. They are the people who know. They know where the bodies are buried. And the other thing I did, which was again a bit of a fluke, I decided to go to Kalispell, where they shot Heaven's Gate for seven months, 40 years ago. And everybody said, why are you going there? It was 40 years ago. It's just some hick town in Montana. And I didn't know I had a kind of instinct I, in, the, in the local newsletter, what well, once would have been a newspaper, but it's now a kind of online thing. I just paid for, you know, like 25 bucks for a little ad saying, you know, I'm writing a book about Michael Cimino and Heaven's Gate. If anybody remembers anything, here's my email. So this was the, it's called the Interlakes, Kalispell, whatever. I had like 60 emails from people and it became clear that nothing had been excite as exciting to Kalispell as the shooting of Heaven's Gate 40 years ago, and nothing as exciting had ever happened since. It was because there were a lot of young people on the move. There weren't even that old, half of them. Um, and I went up to Kalispell, stayed in the, in the hotel where the crew stayed 40 years before, and I mean, I didn't interview 60 people because a lot of them, they'd worked as an extra for one day. So I cut the list right, right down. But I found, well, you've read the book. I found just the greatest people. They had, you know, they produced scrapbooks full of, you know, like paper clippings and photographs and just great. I mean, for a biographer, absolute gold dust, absolutely wonderful things. And the, probably the most valuable person. I mean, I talked to Chris Christopherson Standin, who was there for seven months. Um, the person who was most valuable <coughs> was um, Chimino's driver. Anybody, drivers know everything. He drove Chimino to the set, which was like three hours away. He's got Van Robinson. He drove Chimino three hours to the set and three hours back from the set in the evening, alone in a car with Chimino. He told me unbelievable things. I mean, nice things. He loved Chimino. Um, 
And the other interesting thing about going to Kalispell was the general presumption about the movie was that it was like being in a kind of concentration camp. There was this monster like Jim Jones at whatever that place is called, Jonestown, you know what I mean? There was a kind of madman and whipping people into working 24 hours a day. And it was all a nightmare. In fact, when I got there and talking to Penny Shaw, who worked with Chimino and his longtime secretary was also in Kalispell, you know, they said we had such a great time. And it's so they're in the book. I, they gave me photographs. There are photographs of Chimino smiling and joking, um, practical jokes. Chimino was 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 very good under pressure. And towards the end, it all got a bit more ragged. But for the three quarters of the shoot, they all had a great time. I mean, they had to work really hard, but everybody on movies works hard. That's not a that's not surprising. They had a great time. And that was really interesting. And so I was glad to give some other perspective as opposed to Stephen Bach's, you know, it was the biggest nightmare in the world. It was like this battle of the Somme in the First World War. It wasn't. To me, it was totally in control. He loved doing what he was doing. He worked harder than anybody else. And that was a nice thing. So it was nice. I didn't know half of this before I started doing the book. It was nice to discover something different. Well, I know we've, I know we're in any good book, it's hard to really get a total idea of it from a discussion, a short, a reasonably short discussion. But I think we've done a, a good job of giving some really great information about what's in the book. But as I say, it is a total by, in a, I mean, it's a chronologic chronology of his life because you go from right from the beginning of the book is obviously in chronological order so we yeah. get some you you include a lot of background information about his post heaven's gate life yeah. and some of the other things his involvement in for example in cri the criterion edition uh yeah uh uh director's cut version of Heaven's Gate, which yeah. we've already said is spectacular. Yeah. So and, and all up till his death. So it is just unbelievable to get such a great portrait of somebody who, quite frankly, did everything he could to avoid anybody being able to yeah. give a true yeah. portrait of him. Sure. So I really I mean, the story of the book, the story of the book is essentially me trying to get to know somebody who is finally unknowable. And I can't pretend that I came up with any great wisdom. And in, in a sense, what I do in the book, I don't, I don't editorialize. I don't give my opinion about things. It's like Rashomon. Every Chimino story, there's like five different versions of it. And I just put it out there. I'm not really saying what I believe to be true. And of the people I talk to, Chimino is still a very contentious subject with people. There are three kinds of people I talk to. The people who told the truth, the people who lied, and the people who thought they were telling the truth, but it wasn't necessarily the truth, but that's not their fault. Those were the people, and that was fascinating. I mean, I know the people who were lying. I'm not going to tell you who they were. Um, it was a great process. I absolutely, I wish I could say it was two years of pain. I loved every second of it. Well, and as I say, I hope people will 
if they, I mean, the book came out earlier this year already, so it's been out for a little while, but yeah. it really is, is a great book to read. It's, it's, you know, it's not super long, not that that makes a difference to a, to a good book, but it's very readable, uh, lots of good stories, but in the end, you feel like it has the ring of truth to it, which, yeah. you know, in an area where it's almost impossible to really know the truth. So, Absolutely. as I say, I, I really appreciate the time that you've talked with me. We, you know, no, I, think we could pro- I think we could have gone for even another hour, yes. but I think yes. the average listener probably would have said, okay, that's enough of that. So. Uh, yeah. Nothing, nothing wrong with with the discussion. So no. I really, really want to appreciate your say. I appreciate your time. Uh, as I say, books about movies can be one of two things: they can be very interesting, or they could be just fawning no. and over the film. And yet, you presented a lot of good information. And like I said before, because of all the people we were able to talk, I think we we get a really great view of him, not yeah. only just yeah. for Heaven's Gate, but his his entire career. So yeah. Charles Elton, author of Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of a Vision. I really appreciate the time that you gave me, and uh, I hope the book continues to well, do well. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks. My great thanks to Charles Elton for his time. I hope that you will consider another look at Heaven's Gate. While still controversial and problematic, this book includes useful commentary to show the overall importance of Michael Cimino. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.